Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. Good morning. Hey, I don't know about you, but I find it fascinating that the same old superhero stories play generation after generation. We repackage them, new actors, we reframe the stories, but they're kind of like jazz standards, you know? Frank Sinatra sang them, Ella Fitzgerald sang them, and then in this generation, like Michael Bublé sings them, but they're all singing like Pennies from Heaven or Girl from Ipanema or whatever. Well, these superhero stories are like the, the jazz standards of our culture. We watch them and then we reinvent them and watch them again and pass these stories down to the next generation. I think there's something in us that is, um, is given hope, that's drawn to the fact that there, or the idea that there would be people out there uh, who care that much, who are super virtuous as well as super strong. Well, I especially enjoy the way that Disney and Marvel have reinterpreted these old stories. Anyone else a fan of the Marvel so-called cinematic universe? I think it's really cool because here are these beings with supernatural powers, but they're very unsupernatural and ordinary in their relational dynamics and needs. And I think it's those subtexts and uh, side plots of the relationships between the characters that really makes these distinct among the generations of retellings of these same old stories. And I found it especially entertaining in the last one, you know, Endgame, where they wrapped up the Avengers saga, that uh, the, the the, the way that the relationship between Thor and Quill came to a head. You know, they've had brewing this passive-aggressive power struggle since Thor was stranded somewhere and got picked up in the last movie by the Guardians of the Galaxy and is on their ship and, and Star-Lord or Quill, who's kind of half superhero and half mortal and not as powerful as Thor uh, or as, as, as thunderous in his voice or as good-looking or whatever. Uh, and and he's, a bit, he's a bit insecure. That's kind of his jam. And so he's got Thor on his ship and Thor is used to being in charge in whatever space he's in and he starts giving orders and Star-Lord's like, oh, this is my ship. And so they go back and forth. Well, I love how at the end of the movie, after they save the universe from Thanos, right, Thor decides he's going to go with them and help guard the galaxy, I guess. He gets in the ship, and there was that funny, awkward moment where um, Quill says, well, it's a good thing we, we know who's in charge. And, and then the others say, who's in charge? And, and, and so um, one of them says, perhaps you should fight for the honor of leadership. And then someone says, oh, yeah, fight with knives. <laughs> and I thought it was great. Thor says, there shall be no knifing of one another. Everybody knows who's in charge. And then Quill goes, me. <laughs> yes, of course, of course. And so it passive-aggressively continues this power struggle that they have. I just thought it was fabulous. And what's so special about it is that it mirrors and illuminates this dynamic that lives in so many of us, right? Who's really in charge? I think there is a little uh, Thor and Star-Lord duel going on inside the hearts of so many Christians going, uh, we all know who's in charge, Jesus. Yes, of course. But to follow Jesus at the end of the day is to be submitted. And that's our title this morning. 
We're in a series called Postures of the Heart, where we're looking through the early Psalms at these positions, if you will, or orientations, alignments of heart. These don't have to do with how we interact with one another, our mission to the city or the world, but rather how we live well according to God's good design and under His leadership. Last week, we talked about the posture of being grounded in His Word. This morning, we're looking at submitted. Psalm 2 is our text in verse 6. The Bible reads, For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, on my holy mountain. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Only ask and I will give the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Now then, you kings, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son, or he will become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of all your activities, for his anger flares up in an instant. But what joy for all who take refuge in him. It's pretty clear that the psalmist on one level is talking about perhaps the geopolitical leader of the people of Israel at the time of its writing, but on another level is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about the coming Messiah, Jesus. The book of Hebrews and other New Testament texts affirm that. When he says, the Lord said to me, today you are my son, today I have become your father, it's, it's as it were a dialogue between God the Father and God the Son. And so here the psalmist writes about Jesus, the one to whom the people look, whom they're expecting as Redeemer and Messiah. And he says, submit, submit to God's royal son. Clearly that's Jesus. And a heart posture of submission, it's important to note as we start out, looks to Jesus as Savior, yes, and most of us do that, and we're grateful that we're saved by grace through faith, that he's done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, what we needed. He's made us right with God, dying on a cross, paying the price for our sins, and setting us up so that we get to spend eternity united with God. We look to Jesus as Savior, but a submitted heart looks to him as Lord as well. And that's something that however it's expressed in words, is far less common in practice among God's people. One who is submitted rejoices that God is good and orders his life in order to obey and surrender to God's word. Whatever religious words we say, we either live in complete submission or we live in rebellion. I would suggest there is no middle ground. Only one can be in charge, and Jesus asks us to choose. And that's the big idea this morning. Only one can be in charge. Jesus asks us to choose. In Matthew 15, the Savior quoted the prophet Isaiah, these people, these religious people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and their worship, consequently, is a farce. See, they do the right outward motions, they say the correct words. They sing the songs. They look the part, but their hearts are far from me. Perhaps they look to me as Savior, but 
They don't surrender to me as Lord. And thus, their worship is thin. It's insincere. It's a farce. And I think what Jesus spoke of the religious people of his day, sadly, is far too common among the religious people of our day. It's common in church to say the words, to act the part, and to want the benefits, but to hold on to the reins at the end of the day. Psalm 50, God says to the wicked, why bother reciting my decrees and pretending to obey my covenant? For you, re- you refuse rather my discipline and you treat my words like trash. Why bother pretending that you're a part of this covenant when you refuse my discipline? We hear discipline and we think, you know, being sent to time out and there is an expression of discipline when God realigns us with him. But discipline in the holistic sense is his structure, his order, his system of being, his ways, if you will. So how do we refuse God's discipline? How do we refuse his order and his ways? Well, I think it's, it's kind of baked into the way we live our lives very often. The way we manage our most precious resource, our time. We say, God, we're for you. We say, Jesus, you're in charge of our life. But we do with our time, sadly, often what exactly we want to do. We do what pleases us, what fulfills us, what gives us opportunity, what nurtures our ambition, what bolsters our sense of self, or the way we spend our money. We say, Jesus, you're my Lord, but that which expresses value most objectifiably, we hold on to with the white knuckle grip. I think we resist his discipline in the way that we manage the things that we value most, the things with which we closest, most closely identify about ourselves. I would say we resist his discipline often in the way we manage our sexuality. We're like, yeah, God, I want you to be the Lord of my life up until this point, but this space, this is mine. And that that does something for me, for my worth, for my pleasure. That does something for me that you can't come in. Now, very few of us say that out loud or write that in our journals. We don't own to it. It just bears out in the way we live our lives. It bears out in the posture of our hearts. We refuse this discipline in the words we speak, and in the attitudes that we cherish in our hearts. You know, we come to church, we gather and repent of our sins and thank God for forgiving us, recognizing that we are so in need of grace, only to walk out into the world and form opinions and express judgments about everyone we encounter. In verse 6, The Lord declares, I've placed my chosen king on the throne. Now then, you kings act wisely. And on one level, he's speaking to the the rulers of nations of his day. But think about it. It says, you kings, with the small k, act wisely. 
Be warned, you rulers of the earth. And the word of God makes clear that God made us as humans just a little lower than the angels and put under our dominion all of his creation. We're the rulers of the earth. And we kings are such because we've created little kingdoms. And rightly so very often, stewarding the gifts God's given us, we have taken the one talent and multiplied it, right? We've built businesses. We've created families. We've established spheres of influence. We've amassed wealth. And these kingdoms we sit on as little kings. And so God gives notice and he says, hear this, you kings of the earth. He doesn't say you shouldn't be kings over your little kingdoms. He says, still at the same time, I have placed my chosen king on the throne. So be warned and serve that king. Serve the Lord Jesus with, listen, reverent fear. This point in this text calls for a pause and a quick aside on this significant and subtle theological concept that you may have heard of called the fear of the Lord. It's one of those notions of faith that's a little bit arcane in the language, and so too often we throw the baby out with the bathwater, kind of like Holy Ghost. Anyone come to faith in Jesus, and you go to church, and they're like, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's like Vincent Price sounding, and it's scary, right? It's something like a horror movie. And they're like, everything you know of ghosts is like poltergeist. And they get in you and you're like, get out of me. And you have to do stuff to, to get exercised of them. No one wants a ghost living in them. We run away from ghosts. That's everything in our culture. So the word deserves. But the spirit of God, of course, isn't scary. And he's not interested in possessing you in some nefarious way. In the same way, and we learn that as we come to know the third person of the triune Godhead, he's God with us. He's God so close to us that we experience the constant goodness of his fellowship. In the same way, this notion of the fear of the Lord, it triggers all the wrong things for us. And perhaps that's because we had bad leadership that instilled earthly fear in us and made us cower because we're going to get hit or we're going to get controlled or we're going to get put under somebody else's authority in a forceful way. Old-fashioned language means something different in modern context and stirs a very different fear. And so this foundational idea for life in Jesus is misunderstood or perhaps dismissed altogether. What I want to do is reclaim the concept, leave the language aside. So we're talking about a heart posture of submission. God's idea of fear of the Lord is though consistent with his character as every idea of God is. It has to do not with subjugation, but with submission. Anytime you encounter something like Holy Ghost and it trips you up, think about it in the context of the broader revelation of God's character and nature. God's nature is good. He described himself from the very beginning as a father, a loving, involved father. And so the fear of the Lord can't mean the opposite of what God has clearly revealed himself to be. It recognizes the fear of the Lord that God is good, but it also recognizes that God is in charge. That as C.S. Lewis wrote about his allegorical figure, Aslan, he is not a tame lion. Serve the Lord, verse 11 says, with reverent fear. And listen, to understand, to unpack what that reverent fear looks like, rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. 
Submit in this way to God's royal son. What does submission to Jesus, God's son, look like? It looks like serving him in reverent fear. What is reverent fear? It's this juxtaposition of contrasting ideals. Rejoice with trembling. Submission couples these two divergent notions, apparently, in a single posture of heart. Submission couples rejoicing with trembling in one single posture of heart. This paradox of approaches to God is key to understanding the posture of submission, that without which we cannot authentically know and please God. It would be in keeping with God's nature that we would approach him by way of paradox. God is in very nature a paradox. Think of it. Scripture teaches that he dwells in unapproachable light, and then elsewhere teaches us boldly to approach the throne of grace. So what are we supposed to do with that? I'm boldly to approach that which is surrounded in light, so brilliant and dazzling that it's unapproachable? How does that work? He is to the apostle Paul, Abba, Father, Daddy, so close and personal and redemptive, and to Moses, a consuming fire. The prophet Isaiah experienced God in a vision and said, woe is me, I am ruined. Only later in his life, as he's gotten to know God, speaking on his behalf to the covenant community of the people of Israel to describe God as tender, tender as a nursing mother. The apostle Paul, Jesus' best friend, rather the apostle John, Jesus' best friend, in his younger days, reclined against Jesus' breast at the table, only in his old age to experience Jesus in his glory and fall trembling at his feet. To approach God is a paradox. And so this subtle and hugely important posture of heart relies on our grasping and understanding it. The heart posture of submission holds these two realities, rejoicing with trembling. It holds them in tension and it responds to both. I think this is doubly challenging because paradoxes are called so for a reason and because in church culture, we like it to snap to one grid or the other. We don't do well standing on the middle of a seesaw in tension. We want it to go this way or that way. So there are some church experiences, and perhaps this has been your background, where God is, is all loving and we rejoice in him and he's a good father and we cuddle up in his lap and, and it's like God's like Santa Claus, right? Like maybe he's making a list and checking it twice. He knows who's naughty and nice and, you know, he sees you and stuff. But at the end of the day, who really gets coal in their stocking? Like who's on the naughty list? It's all good in the end, Right? So we make God into like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Or, and maybe you came from that church, and you know in that church, God is like, Jesus is like your surfing buddy, you know? He's so familiar. It's like, Jesus, bro. Dude, I'm just so down with you, man. You're just like so chill. I'm just like so rad that you love me, and I'm just cool. And there's this familiarity that gets scary, or perhaps you came from a church that snapped to the other grid. And it's like God is Kim Jong-un, the maniacal dictator of North Korea, who takes pleasure seemingly in devising ways to control and inflict pain on his people. Because really he's into power. Malachi, I love the book of Malachi. It's one of the minor prophets. It's the last, in fact, book in the Old Testament. And it really is the fear of the Lord book. 
If you're wanting to understand and do some further reading on this subtle concept, it's so important of the fear of the Lord. That's what Malachi is all about. Perhaps we'll do a series through that book someday. In Malachi chapter one, listen to what God says through his prophet. It's fitting that this, by the way, is the last book of the Old Testament. It's sort of a bridge to the new covenant. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect? See, therein lies the tension. If we're honest, lots of us make Jesus our Savior and never really make him our Lord. Indian American writer and thinker Ravi Zacharias, who has for decades been a hero of mine, tells this fascinating anecdote. In the Hindi language, he writes, the word for father is pita, P-I-T-A. The word for mother is mata, M-A-T-A. You do not call your father, though, pita or your mother mata, even though those are the correct words. You always add the suffix G, J-E-E. So you call your father pita G and your mother mata G because G denotes respect and reverence. The closest parallel in the West would be in the southern United States where a son calls his father sir and his mother ma'am. Daddy and mommy are terms of endearment. The one who is nearest is also, though, revered. And so in contemporary application, what God is really saying to his people is, you call me daddy, where is the sir? And so see, that's what the heart posture of submission is all about. It's not a fear of the Lord that strikes terror in our hearts or causes us to cower or wants to grind us under his thumb. It's a balance of rejoicing in his fellowship, receiving his redemption, experiencing his nearness, while also respecting, reverencing his authority. Submission as a heart posture looks to God and says, Daddy, sir. So what does this look like for us? How does this play out practically? Submission is a scary concept. It's one of those things we hear and we're like, yeah, that's good. And then our, our heart sort of thinking with a mind of its own is going, there's no way I'm doing that. Because we've let up on the reins before. We've given away control to our own detriment. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? And so we're reluctant to give up control. But listen, listen to what God says in Psalm 31. How great is the goodness you have stored up for those who fear you. You lavish it on those who come to you for protection, blessing them before the watching world. You hide them in the shelter of your presence. Listen to what those who fear the Lord are promised. Listen to what you're being invited into. Goodness, blessing, shelter. Do you see it? Submission doesn't grind us down. Submission lifts us up. The heart posture of submission, it aligns us with God's good design. God's not looking to whack us. He's not some control freak who wants to run your life because he doesn't value you. God is your creator. 
God thought of you. God knows what it means to be human. And thus, he knows what's going to fulfill your human existence. He knows the plans for which he made you, and he's leading you into them. Kind of like when you discipline your child for touching a hot stove or getting close to it, because you know that even though they want to touch the bright, shiny, glowing thing, and you seem like the mean taskmaster to their three-year-old consciousness, you know how it's going to go well for them when they submit to you and how it's going to go poorly for them when they do not. God's that way. He's a good father. He's got good things in store for you. Submitting your life to Jesus' lordship, to the authority of his word, it leads to blessing. This is the way that we experience the fullness of life that God has for us. And so when we hear this, sometimes in church, there's a fork in the road. We talk about the fear of the Lord. Here we are squarely in the New Testament era, but we go all Old Testament without realizing it. We're like, okay, I guess this means I got to get my, my rules on. I got to do the church rules better. I can't do this. I better do that. None of this and absolutely know that. The problem is God's people tried for thousands of years and flailed and failed at following all the rules and meeting God's expectations that way. So God's not saying, hey, here's an exhaustive list of the rules. Keep all of them and you're good. He's saying, submit to my son. Because Jesus Christ died on a cross, paid the price for our sin. He didn't abolish all those laws. He fulfilled them. He accomplished what we couldn't hope to accomplish for ourselves. And in so doing, invited us into the relationship with God, which we would have if it were humanly possible to follow all the rules. So this isn't do the rules better. This is come under Jesus. He who is your savior. In 2020, I want to challenge you. Ask what it means to make him your Lord as well. So what does that look like? You told me, obey his word. Right. This is what God asks of us, to believe in his son. What does that mean? Well, there is a compliance component to belief, lest we make this flimsy faith, right? Cheap grace. Because if somebody comes, say our officer comes running in the back of the door in the middle of this message and says, the building's on fire. And we're like, all right, I believe you. And I keep on talking. Did we believe him? Yes or no? Of course not, because there is logically a compliance that's joined to authentic belief. But we don't have to comply with all of the rules because we cannot. We come under Jesus, and by grace, through faith, we are made righteous. We are made compliant. So what does that mean? Believe in Jesus and sin all we want? Of course not. It means, as Proverbs 3 succinctly put it, trust in the Lord with all of your heart, with the majority of our hearts that we do and that portion that we keep walled off and say, I'm gonna trust in myself there. Because we've been hurt or because we've been ambitious or whatever reason. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. It looks like inviting Jesus into every room in my heart. It looks like acknowledging him in all my ways. Does that mean I'm going to have a prayer of following every rule and never getting it wrong? Of course not. But it says, Jesus, in this way, I acknowledge 
that your way is better than mine. I acknowledge that I need your help in my striving, in my judgment, in my sexual indiscipline, in my greed. I need your help. I bring you into this room. I bring this area of my heart into the light, and I acknowledge you. Jesus, I need your help. He runs to the aid of the contrite. Submission comes down to control. Really, this heart posture is a referendum on control. Who's going to, at the end of the day, hold the reins? Who's really king? And see, that's exactly what fasting works out. I love that Pastor George invited you to participate in awakening, not as some religious duty or gold star experience, but because we get to practice submission on a cheeseburger, where heaven and hell is not in the balance. Like, here's a rule, here's a vow I have made. Scripture says, make vows to the Lord and keep them. I'm going to make this vow that I'm only going to eat vegetables or whatever. And now, God, out of submission to you, recognizing your lordship, I'm going to keep it. And that trains my human being, my flesh, if you will, in submission. And there's some repetition value, doing something and recognizing, oop, I'm going to recenter and doing it again. Oop, I'm going to recenter and doing it again. And over the course of three weeks, we work out submission. That's the practical value of fasting. And that's why I invite you and hope you'll join us with whatever grace you have in this awakening time of prayer fasting and consecration to start our year. Because listen, when we align with Jesus, when we submit and make Jesus not only our Savior, but our Lord as well, it's not only our eternal destiny that's in the balance, it's our life on earth. Jesus said, I came to give them life abundantly. I didn't come to take anything from you. The thief does that. I came to give you rich, satisfying, abundant, overflowing life. And submitting to Jesus, that's where that life begins. Amen? All right, would you stand up with me? It's time for us to go. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your goodness. And Lord, we recognize your authority. And I think some of us, me and all of us probably at different times, we need to just repent. If that's you, would you just, uh, would you just open your hearts and pray this in your heart with me? In fact, would you pray this out loud with me? Heavenly Father, I recognize that I've held on to the reins in many areas in my life. I repent of making Jesus my Savior and not making him my Lord. And I ask you, teach me how to submit. Come change my heart, Jesus. I want to live with you according to your good design. Amen. Amen. Love you all. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. 